Ladies and gentlemen, Tropic Guys, Tropic Gals, welcome to another episode of Pod Tiki. I am Tony, your fearless host, and this is another episode of Tiki Chat, where we have a very special guest tonight. And I know you say that all the time, Tony, but I mean it this time, because this is somebody that not only have I looked up to in the genre since I started, but someone who I actually pull a lot of, of information from, from her book, and... Uh, someone who's been in the business for a long time, who's seen the revival happen, who's an expert in rum and tiki, and literally wrote the book on it. So I'm very happy tonight to talk to Shannon Mustafer. Welcome to the show. Tony, um, so great to be here. Thanks for having me on. So, uh, man, there's so much stuff I can, I feel like I can sit here and even just the pre-conversation we were having, I feel like I can just jump right in and talk about Realm and Tiki for hours, but I want to make sure we hit the high points. And for anybody who doesn't um, know or doesn't follow, can you just talk a little bit about what got you into this genre in the first place? Like, what, what was it about Realm that, that kind of got you started in this? Okay, so I like to say that the devil made me do it. Because mm. uh, when I became beverage director of Gladys Caribbean, which later became Gladys Rum Bar in 2016, I had next to no prior experience with rum, tiki, cocktails, anything related to what I'm known for at the moment. When I joined that crew in 2015, Gladys was a new American restaurant, and um, I'd only had maybe like a handful of rums at that point. I was kind of more of a Prohibition era style cocktailing sure. individual, you know, big into whiskey and gin. I moved to New York about a decade earlier in 2006. And my North Stars in regards to mixology included Death and Co., Dutch Kills, Milk and Honey, right? And there were a few rum drinks on those programs, but it wasn't really prevalent. On the East Coast, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as contrasted to Florida or California, really wasn't that much going on. There have been some establishments that made some stabs at it, made some attempts. You know, I'm just going back to um, Dutch Hills. You know, the partners that were involved in that also opened PKNY or Painkiller NY. So, but no. so, how much? Um, just not to interrupt, but um, so you were trained in more of a prohibition classic cocktail style. How many? How long had you been cocktailing before um you got the 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 job at Gladys? Two years full time, okay. and I worked, you know, in wine bars and as a front of house server in restaurants prior to that, with a little bartending kind of mixed in. But it was when I joined the team at Gladys that my career shifted you know, to focus behind the bar, which is what I had been looking for all along. Cool. Um, but the, the rum cocktail element just wasn't a part of it because the culture in New York wasn't there at the moment. I mean, if my memory's correct, you know, Donna Cocktail Club in Williamsburg definitely had a very robust program. But outside of that, and then later Mother of Pearl, which is not so much a rum bar, but more of a tropical bar, it just wasn't much going on. So mm -hmm. um, the experience of kind of being thrown into being tasked with shifting Gladys from New American 
to a Caribbean concept in the space of a month and taking that time to taste, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 rums to come in with the back bar 50 and the cocktails really opened my eyes because it, it just wasn't on my radar. You know, I, it wasn't my idea. Yeah. I was asked to do it. And then I got, you know, so captivated by it. And here we are. So how did you, um, kind of expand your horizons and when you were getting to know that style of cocktail making like uh what were some of the resources you used i mean i'm assuming probably all the classic tiki books we all have but then i'm sure you being in that environment in like uh in new york city even though that might not have been the prevalent style i'm sure there was a lot of cocktail or bartending expertise to look towards to kind of learn from or or did you just go way back to like the don beach days like we all did when we first started well i I went back to the Don Beach days and the Trader Vic days by a, a Beach Bum Berries and mm -hmm. research. So, um, Bridget Fertile, who founded Oni's Rum, which you may or may not be familiar with, mm -hmm. I don't know if the brand is still out at the moment, um, gifted me with a copy of Potions of the Caribbean. And I read it while I was setting up the bar program at Gladys, not with the intention to put a tiki program on, just mm -hmm. for clarity, but just to understand like the genealogy of the drinks that um, were influential in regards to rum mixology in general. Um, and in the process of reading that book, I became fascinated with two templates, um, the Decadee, as embodied by what is served at Bar Florida and Havana and the Mai Tai. So I did put those two templates on the opening menu and continue to tweak and explore those over the years and come up with, you know, some original ideas based on those. But where rum mixology is concerned and what was influencing me, I would cite that as the kind of like biggest touchstone. And then, you know, subsequently, you know, visiting other bars, attending Tiki by the Sea, and we can unpack those details later. But that book really set me up to want to find traditional ways of serving rum in an elevated manner. Now, uh, you, you just mentioned, you know, creating the cocktails, the classics, and then you just also just said serving rum. One of the things um, that you do very well, um, especially because I follow your social media, I know you're also you do a lot of um, consulting and, and writing and um, and uh, you and, and Martin Kate does this as well. But you guys have this this cool way of like these 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 Venn diagram of where tiki meets rum, but you also you can make your cocktails, your tropical cocktails, and then you're also a, a rum aficionado on this side, and they come together in the middle. And differentiating those two things is kind of like like it's I, I feel like you can't have tiki without rum, but you also rum can stand on its own and be it's you can just be a rum uh, connoisseur without you know without having to even mix anything and getting to explore the uh, rum as a spirit that people look up to or, or enjoy in the same way they would a bourbon or a brandy or something like that. I'm loving that. I'm loving now that that's becoming more of a thing. Uh, did you, once you got into that style and explored that, did you 
like what was it about rum that made you, that made you fall in love and want to and want to dive all the way into that like i mean there's such a diversity into it which that might even be one of the things but there's there's so much to rum it's almost over overwhelming to want to dive into it well, the diversity is a thing that was appealing to me initially and i'm glad you bring it up because prior to working behind a bar i work with a business that owned a few wine shops i helped them open up their first wine bar that was kind of like my first bartending gig and what i loved about wine and you know being a, a part of that business was learning tasting getting insight into the diversity of wine as a, a global beverage and most importantly finding ways to make it relatable to our customers and our guests so fast forward a few years after that initial kind of breaking into um the beverage industry in new york when i was tasting all the rums i kind of connected those dots and realized that it was very diverse category is very diverse but people didn't seem to be aware of that or interested in that element and so I saw that as an opportunity to frame the rum category in a way that maybe people hadn't approached it prior, mm -hmm. right? So making that back bar and going back to your classification um, idea, French, Spanish, English, I'm thinking, well, the neighborhood we're situated in is Crown Heights. There's wine shops all around. People get it. And so that's how I frame the category. It's global, it's diverse, it's connected to culture, it's connected to the way people eat and celebrate around the world. So rather than being like, I can't pin it down, this is frustrating. Mm -hmm. I embrace that as like a way to connect with all kinds of people. There's a, you know, it's funny you say that about about um, where you were in Crown Heights, because I feel Nashville kind of got a little bit of that where I am a little bit of a of, of an aid or a little bit of a jump off point because we're such like a we were such a craft cocktail town already with like the bourbons and the speakeasies that when rum and tropical bars and tiki came to town it was an easy comparison to make to be like oh hey you guys like this kind of stuff if you're if you're really into bourbon and you know the diverse you know the you know scotches and bourbons and whiskeys and all the mash builds and all that well here's this here's this other spirit that's even more diverse and offers more flavor profiles and offer more things. And you can sit and, and, and still, uh, and still, uh, and, and sip it, enjoy it or mix it or whatever. And it's, um, it really offered a, uh, it, it wasn't that much of a, of a transition to get to, to the rum, which kind of helps. No, I just, it, it's kind of cliche to, to keep on pointing it out. But one of the biggest things that I love when I, when people just don't know about the diversity of rum is just come over to the house and let me pour you a glass of like a Havana style Spanish rum and then let me pour you a glass of Clement, you know, and taste it and and tell and you would not believe this is the same spirit, right? Let me give you a you know a, an Appleton like a, a pot still oh Hampton or something like that, Jamaican rum and then you know and then something from Guyana and it's like the these, there's so many different things, so many places to go, and which offers so many, so many options for creating cocktails. And I don't know, is there? I I can't think of any other spirit that has a genre attached to it so tightly as tiki and tropical does with rum. I mean, 
I, I I don't know if there's any other spirit that is only that has that that kind of um, milieu around it. Well, I gotta point out two important factors here, right? So, in regards to realm being tied to Tiki or closely associated with it, um, there was a pragmatic element to it, and this also contributed to how the new Gladys was configured and set up. A, cost effectiveness, right? So um, a realm that's aged for eight years can taste on the palate like a whiskey that's aged for 15 or 20 years just by virtue of angel share and yeah. the rate of aging and maturation it takes place. So you can get complexity of flavor out of a quote-unquote younger age spirit with the rum category if we're talking about Caribbean aging. And that also kind of leads into um, what was going on post-prohibition, right? So I'm going to go to Trader Vic, or I'm going to go back to Don Beachcomb. You know, his family, you know, had connections and ties in New Orleans, in the Gulf Coast, off of Texas. Rumor has it had an uncle that was involved in bootlegging and was, you know, trading the rum. And then when, you know, he came of age and decided to open up a bar, he was so versed in rum already by virtue of that, as well as like, you know, had his own personal fascination with Polynesian culture and was working as a prop stylist and consultant in Hollywood. And so he brought all those elements together and also recognize that from a mixology standpoint, yes, rum does have, in my opinion, and I think it's been proven by a tiki, so much flexibility and versatility in regards to how you can use it in different serves, how you can combine a couple rums to create something that's amazing. special. Yeah, you know? that's just amazing. But, yeah, what one rum can do, three can do better. And that's the premise of the zombie which I consider to be one of three kind of like canonical tiki cocktails, zombie, Mai Tai, Jungle Bird. And we can unpack why I view it that way later, but he was onto something. Well, I mean, this sounds like, because um, I can ramble on uh, all night, but so for the sake of brevity, this, this sounds like a good point to jump into the cocktail aspect of it. When you, uh, the book has been out now since uh, 2019, Tiki Modern Tropical Cocktails. Um, I tell you, one of the things that before I even read it was it. Am I right about that? It was it 2019? Yeah, I'm just looking at my wall calendar and oh. just having my moment. Like you know, time flies when you're having oh. rum. No, <laughs> yeah, not yeah. Well, not to not to mention the pandemic kind of just erased all memory of time from my brain. Now I have no idea when things yeah. happened if they were more than three years ago. But I tell you, one of the things that I love about the book um, that before I even read it was just the stunning artwork and the pictures and everything, um, which is what, you know, when I'm scrolling through all the books out there to try to get, this one jumped out at me because, I first of all, I just wanted to look at the pictures. Um, the photography is amazing. And then getting into it, I love the idea. Um, like I said, I use the book often for comparing when I'm doing a recipe that is a classic recipe that you have in here. I like the way that you handle that first. You put down, um, you explored some of the classic drinks, before you went off into some of your your new and your your nascent versions, um, but I had never done a 
one of your originals on the podcast before. And I said, man, I, I, I want to dive in. And I, of course, I have to find one first that I can find all the ingredients for. Uh, unfortunately, when you deal with tiki, sometimes it's hard to find uh, the stuff. And, you know, I'm not going to sit here and um, I'm, I'm not going to infuse a whole bottle of something with, you know, that I'm only going to drink one or two of before I know I like it. So I try to find something and lo and behold, it's the it's the cover art piece that is always jumped out at me, the Isla del Pina. And um, I really wanted to to, um, you know, give it a shot. And this speaking of. And I'm, I promise this is leading into a question or a comment. But speaking of um, not being able to get ingredients, a lot of times with tiki, I guess even with prohibition style stuff, you run into the issue of, well, I, this is either hard to get or it's too expensive or I got to order it from somewhere. And uh, I even noticed when I was doing the Isle del Pena, it, you, the, um, I was able, ironically, to find everything that you listed—the uh, the rum, the right down to the the um, the Giffords uh, pineapple liqueur—and I was like, "Wow, I actually found everything here." Ironically, the hardest thing that I to, to pin down was the passion fruit puree, because I have to go to Whole Foods and get the little the puree that you that you suggest using. Um, but you also suggest in the back of the book if you live in a place where you find fresh fruit to give that a shot, and so in the trying to be the purist that I am, I initially first got some fresh um, passion fruit. I had went down to the Latin market. I got some fresh ones. I, um, you know, I de I deseeded it. I put a little bit of water in there to like get it to get it to come out. Um, made a drink and was like way over the top passion fruit, like heavy. And I just kept on thinking, there's no way she meant for this cocktail to be this way. I got to be doing something wrong, and. Uh, lo and behold, I actually the next day got off my ass and actually went to the store like I should have done in the first place and got the frozen puree that you suggest using. And I tried it with that. And of course, it was perfect. Super, super balanced. Just right. So I guess my question in all this is when it comes to having the sub stuff out that you can't get and you, um, do you find an acceptable level of, OK, if you can't find this, you can use this or you you might have to adjust your levels a little bit to get it to be right and. I don't know. Like, what what are your thoughts on on subbing stuff out? I think subbing stuff out is inevitable, and I encourage people to, you know, just have like more of a hand in the ingredients they use. And by using fresh fruit and making your own puree, you get to adjust the sweet and sour balance to your taste. But you know, we also have to issue a disclaimer that it can be a little tricky because. I can't tell you how much to use because yeah. every region is different and I don't know what they're getting. Right. So the question just comes down to like how much time and energy finances, what have you, do you want to put towards that? Right. So I like to do the recommendation of shelf stable or relatively easily accessible ingredients. And then also say you can figure it out on your own. But be aware that it's going to take a little trial and error. I, and I'm such a nerd about it. Like, I try so hard to get it the way that the person who created it meant it to taste. But, of course, you're never going to know that when you read it from a book. And there's always, and I'm not a professional bartender, but I know just from studying the, the you know, being being a fan of the art form for so long and doing it at home and, you know, um, trying things out my, at myself, that everybody, it's almost like, it's like a chef. It's a lot like a chef, or or where everybody's going to do it 
a little bit different, whether they do it by eyeball or just, or they, you know, there might, there, you can give the ingredient list for a Mai Tai, but you might go a little heavy on the lime juice or a little light on the orgeat or something like that to make it so, so that when I try to replicate it at home, it's not going to be exactly like the way that you make it when you're just not even thinking about it and you're just doing it because you've done it a hundred million times. Uh, personally, I like my drinks less sweet, so I always back off on, on the sugar a little bit, and I find that that makes to my taste. But I also want to keep it pure to the way the person designed it to be, so I find myself juggling with that a lot. Because I'm the kind of nerd well, who will sit here and do that. <laughs> well, okay, just to clarify, I don't know if it was coming across in the text, but the recipes are not meant to be didactic. Like, you pointed out that the book opens up with classic recipes. That's for a reason. That's my way of informing you as the reader what inspired me in the first place. And so the implication is that you can also be inspired and not necessarily feel like you're bound to the recipe, but you can take what you're learning from trying the recipe and then come up with something that works for you, which is what I did by taking the classics as an inspiration and showing you my recipes, right? So I really hoped that people would get fascinated with the ingredients that are presented throughout the book and then come up with something on their own. Like that's the end goal. Not that you make my drinks, but that if you are so inclined, you make your own drinks eventually. And going back to the differences in the realms um, profiles, like just swapping something out, Swapping out one ingredient, like the rum you might use, and uh, it could can make all the difference. For example, I remember the first time I took a simple mojito recipe and just used um, used a, a, a light rum agricole in there and made it made a clement mojito instead of a Spanish rum, and it blew my mind away. I was like, "This is amazing! All you have to do is just just you know try and um, you know try different stuff." And I, I've actually. As someone who likes to be a purist, that is, it's one of the most frustrating parts, but it's also the part that keeps me coming back because I, I love this genre of rum and tiki so much because it's, uh, you can have the classic, you, you go in order a zombie or a Mai Tai, you have a reasonable expectation of what that's going to taste like. But then everybody's kind of got their own spins on it, which can also, which can also be fun. And so, and I'm, I'm starting to open my mind up. Now, I, I used to be that guy who was like, no, I want, this is what a Mai Tai should taste like. And this is what I want, this is what I want when I order it. But, uh, it's so, um, it, it you kind of, when it comes to Tiki, you kind of have to have an open mind and open palate to enjoy all these different things that people are trying. Oh, absolutely agreed. And I mean, let's take something simple, like even gin and tonic. Rum and tonic is the thing also. You look at British naval culture. So you can get it with pussers, it's a pretty traditional way, but I've done agricole and tonic. Right? Oh, that sounds good, actually. I'm just saying, no holes barred. That's what I love about working with rum and, and mixed drinks. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, I love, I mean, like, again, I just love this whole genre. I love it enough to start a podcast about it. And so, um, yeah, let's get up to, I won't take too much of your time. Let's get up to, the, oh, I do want to say before we close the the uh, the chapter, if you will, on on the book, um, one of my favorite recipes that I actually um, explored when I was the uh, well, I think it was the island of Martinique, 
I think you call it something different here, the Isle um, something, but it's uh, that your version of that drink. First of all, that the the old the original version of that drink that or the one that's in Beach Bombberry's book. I uh, I've been making that for years. I love that cocktail. That's um, always been one of my favorites. And then I tried your version in here, and it's slightly different, but it's also e uh, Isle of Martinique. It's a uh, it, 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 equally as amazing. I just love that idea of the rum, agricole, and honey together. Like those two flavors to me, just seem like they were meant to go together. And why that drink is not more popular, or that that combo, amazes me. I just I love that combination of of honey and and an aged rum, agricole. You know something about good honey, right? It it picks up the characteristics of the local terroir, as does a good agricole, right? So that was why I intuitively gravitated towards pairing those together as opposed to doing like a syrup to can, right? Mm -hmm. Good honey, you know, has the pollen and all that stuff that goes into it. So it just felt intuitive to me. I also feel like I don't want to get too um, like a fanboy. I feel like I'm, I'm at that Chris Farley Saturday Night Live bit where he just starts repeating all the stuff that the person did when he's interviewing them. But I do want to make one more mention to one of your cocktails that blew me away. When I was doing the episode I did on the Port-au-Prince, I stuck. I was. I initially stuck to the original. Um, you know, I, th I think it was from one of Jeff's books. The uh, with the Barbancourt, which I love that rum as a sipping rum on the side. I will sip that all day long. But it didn't seem like it stuck out to me much in that Port-au-Prince and I was like what is going on what's what's wrong here what's different or what can I do different to get this rum to come out and then I saw you use the Clarin and that was like oh no yeah no duh this is what this is what this drink was missing this needs a real this this needs a more of a potent Haitian rum to kind of make this a real Haitian drink and it just it made that drink so much better it made the rum actually pop through the juices a little bit more and, and uh, I don't know I really enjoyed that version of the drink well, I, I got to say that, and we're rewinding a little bit, so bear with me. You know, I had the benefit when I was setting up the bar at Gladys and then also working in the book of having access to a wider selection of higher quality rums that, at least on the East Coast, were not easy to come by in the U.S. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, sure. 20 years ago, right? And so for me, the recipes and the way they're resonating with people, they owe a lot to the fact that when I was working on it, there was more quality product coming on the market and that is unabated at this juncture, right? So I also like to just affirm that it's not about like, oh, I have like a brilliant palette. It's like, no, we have better products sure right and that's definitely um helping everything come across better right and so it's a great time for tiki and rum in general in the u.s right i think we've been a little bit of a what we call like a rum desert right we talk about sure. food desert but in america i think it's a bit of a rum desert and i just happened to be able to start working with the category at a time where that was you know, shifting, right? And we have better stuff to work with. And I think we're seeing that all over the place now. It, it's still kind of fun to go places. I was 
just down in Florida and I pick some stuff up down there that I can't get here. And I remember uh, my wife and I were just in Manhattan at the at Christmas time and I was able to I, I went to Tiki Chick and had got was able to get some good rum there on the Upper West Side. And, uh, you know, you find these little pockets and even Nashville, like, you know, we got places like Chopper and Pearl Diver, which are becoming like nationally known kind of tropical bars. Actually, before we jump up here, there was one more thing. I love the idea. And Nashville has a lot of this. I don't know if, I, if it's really spread out, but bars that aren't really tiki bars, but have leaned into the tropical drink like theme on their menus and you see a lot of that around town here anyway, like even things that aren't really tropical bars, they have this like they have a little little nod to uh to the tropics and on their menu or a little, a little bit of their decor or whatever. And I'm it's it's almost like a tropical chic thing that's happening. I mean, let's look at the last like four or five years of what we've been going through, right? Yeah. I think people want to feel the escape is vibe. Hell yeah. Yeah. And I'll just, I'll just leave it there. So I think, you know, well, just say, I, hey, I, you know, I want to just check out and have good hospitality. I dig it. I, yeah. uh, you know, I, I grew up in Florida and I, I'm looking, I'm always looking for that, um, that little vibe to help me feel like I'm home again when I can't be. So I'm digging the fact that even it's funny you, uh, you we have this bar in town that just opened up it's like a 70s and 80s themed bar like with the, like it looks like i my house when i was growing up and but what's the menu the menu is blue hawaiian and hurricane and like all the you know umbrella drinks and everything and it's like man people just want to go out and have fun and these drinks are fun and now that we can order fun drinks and have them actually be good again because like you said we got better products now we got people who know how to make the drinks right um you know, and uh, it's we're finally getting to a point where we can enjoy these drinks the way that they were supposed to be when they were made I mean, with quality ingredients. And and uh, we, uh, just because the drink is 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 frozen or blue doesn't mean that it has to be it has to be crappy. Give me that event you were just talking about that you said you're going to be at. Give me some. You have any more info on that? That um, I didn't I didn't I didn't catch what you said. You said you were going to be oh. somewhere. I'm going to be at Tales of the Cocktail. So okay. that is running from. July 23rd through the 29th. And I'm going to be doing pop-ups with a couple brands from Monday through Wednesday. So that's going to include Ramtra Riviere and Nova Forgo, which are part of Sazerac portfolio. I'll also be doing some work with Hololing and Company. And I'll be pouring Hein Cognac and Fryer Rum, which is from um, Thailand. And then on Wednesday, I'm doing something a little off-grid with a local rum producer from Louisiana called Oxbow Rum. Um, and then maybe there might be something else that, you know, pops up. But nice. I love um, <clears throat> one of the things that uh, that I'd, I'd super dig, I think I touched on a little bit, was um, going and traveling around and getting some of the local spirits. Um you know, you think of rum as as a tropical thing, and uh, I mean, there's my favorite. I, I love all styles of rum, but my favorite style is still Havana Club from or or Ron or Santiago de Cuba. From I just love Cuban rum. I think they do it right. Uh, I don't, I, but not to say I don't appreciate all the other stuff. And I, I, I you know, aside from I know a lot of my Cuban friends don't uh, don't agree with uh, because of the political stuff, but. 
as far as their rum producing goes, I think they do some of the best in the world. And um, so, but aside from the tropical stuff, uh, I mean, I know that um, Andrew from Privateer is a buddy of mine. So they're doing a really good American rum. And then uh, I know that I, I was just down at St. Augustine Distillery down in Florida. They do a pretty good local rum. It's, um, same thing with Marlin and Barrel. And I know there's actually, I think there's even one from Georgia. But I just, uh, I, I love these little, these little pop-up local companies that are doing rum. Hell, we have one Corsair here in Nashville that does their own, they do their own rum and their own gin. And I, I love that these little, almost like we saw with the craft beer research, like the craft beer pop like 10 years ago, 15 years ago, we're kind of seeing that with craft distilleries. At least I am. Maybe you, you've been, maybe you've seen a lot more, you travel a lot more than I do, but at least in Nashville in the Southeast where I spend most of my time, I'm seeing a lot of local distilleries popping up and trying their hands with you know where they maybe used to only do corn whiskeys or bourbons before now they're now they're trying they're trying rums they're trying different kinds of rums they're they're trying uh you know gins and I, I think that's pretty cool I mean that's the thing about rum again like as we alluded to before it's not confined to one geographic area as long as you have like some kind of sugar be it fresh juice or molasses it can be something you produce locally at the distillery or you bring in other sources. It's really up to the distiller and then the person that's overseeing the aging and blending process. So many ways to go about it. Is there, um, let me see, is there, is there, is there something strange out there and make a, a, a rum that maybe sticks out to you that some people, um, like I know, see, I don't have anything that really weird. I have a some some rum that was aged in port bottle or port cast that is is pretty good. But is there anything that I mean? There's, I guess, once you've had once you've had like a funky Jamaican rum and a Clarin and a Clamont. I mean, the, those 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 profiles are pretty strong. But is there anything out there that jumps out to you that you're really liking right now? Well, there's a brand that's been doing some really cool stuff. It's uh, called Ron Cologne El Salvadero. And the gentleman behind the project is invested not only in, you know, creating the rums, but also in supporting local agriculture in proximity to where this rum production is taking place. And they incorporate elements such as coffee and banana into their products and also make a point to do blends. So they're set himself up as a new approach to rum, A, and then B, really um, giving bartenders liquids that are easy to work with because some of their expressions are coffee and rum, banana and rum, or rum and rye blended together, or rum and agave spirit blended together, right? So I... It, it kind of falls on the outskirts of what people would traditionally call rum. But they're just, just going after maximum flavor in a bottle. And they recognize that rum is a spirit that is very flexible and amenable to mixing with different elements. And they kind of build that into what they do. I know um, there's a lot of Man, I feel like we're starting back up again. I promise I won't keep it too long. But I, I got the more you talk, the more I want to ask you something else. But there's, 
you know, we're, we're talking a lot about the rum because I'm, I'm a rum nerd on the side, but the podcast that I do mostly focuses on the tiki and the cocktail aspect of it. So I'm curious when you have this, you must have this Rolodex of things that you know go together in your head so that like when you're building a cocktail or, or something or is, and when you're doing a program, is it almost like, um, you know, here in Music City, we you know if you're making if you're making an album, you try to you try to make songs that have a kind of through line through them that kind of fit the 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 vibe of the album. So when you're starting a program, do you kind of think about that when you're making the cocktails, like that they all kind of fit together in this in this this album? But why do you bring up the music um, analogy? Because I think a good album will kind of take you on a journey and. There are some tracks that are deep and heavy, some are kind of light, breezy, and catchy. And I think a, a good cocktail menu kind of does the same thing, right? Have a, a little bit for everybody, but at the same time, you know, maintaining a consistent theme throughout. So, um, yeah, when I come with a bar concept, yeah, I have a Rolodex, but it's it's not like a plug and play because I'm looking at the location. I'm looking at the, wh who we think are going to be coming in there. We're looking sure. at a price point. So, um, you know, that, that all kind of has an influence on what we ultimately decide to do. And nowadays to stick with the music analogy, nowadays that everything is based on singles, you can have an artist put out a country song one day and a hip hop song the next day. And it's going to, and I wonder like if, um, and, and maybe this is happening in other parts of the country that I'm not around, but it's if there's a, we're going to get to a point where you can go into a bar and get a really good Manhattan, and then someone else, and then the person you go in with can get a really good Mai Tai at the, at the same bar. You know, like like where you you can, those maybe we'll we we see a lot of fusion in restaurants now, right? So um, I wonder if the, I don't know, and there's always been this kind of weird jointness between. Pro prohibition and tiki because they're kind of like they butt up to each other and they're inextricably linked so i don't know i think that'd be kind of fun to see uh you know to, to, to be able to go somewhere and get you know if i go somewhere and get an old-fashioned and my wife can get a nice daiquiri you know and and they both be really good well i mean i gotta go back to shasha petrovsky right the drinks he put on his programs and we're talking about milk and honey and then later other programs that were run by individuals that work with him in partnership or later as just being inspired i'm talking about dutch kills richard picado right um pkny um giuseppe gonzalez and then numerous other individuals who at some point work with him um he focused on something that could be replicated because his idea of a good cocktail was something that could be done in any competent bar and that generally meant five ingredients max four is ideal okay so i think that's why his programs have so much staying power mm. because they're built on things that if you want to make good cocktails of any sort you need to be a master of the classics and i think that maybe there's like this kind of false image of a divide between like 
the classic cocktails that he was proponing or tiki cocktails. Maybe the tiki cocktails were looked at as like too extravagant and they don't necessarily fit into the Sasha model. But a Mai Tai is perfect for a program like that. So I think any good bar should be able to include a few drinks in a tiki can and no problem. And also just tropical or I guess it, it, it's funny because some of these classic tropical drinks kind of bridge that gap because you know you can you can say a daiquiri is a is a tropical drink or you can say a daiquiri is a classic prohibition style cocktail because it i mean i was i was i've been very lucky in my life to go to havana and watch people at you know at the local bars make mojitos from scratch and the way they do it with the cane sugar and the mint and the muddling and all that and make daiquiris from scratch and i mean you you you, you can't go down there to Havana and tell those guys they're not classic bartenders. They're they're doing the thing for real, and they take pride in it. So it's like that those kind of those drinks kind of bridge the gap, right? From like, uh, like they're tropical drinks, but they're also classic, classic cocktails. Tom Collins, Southside, Bees Knees, right? I mean, you you brought up loving Cuban rum mm -hmm. and. That style was developed in part as a way to compete with gin, which was becoming the preferred cocktailing spirit in the mid-19th century, right? So Bacardi's approach in regards to the proprietary yeast strains, using pot and column distillates and charcoal filtration was meant to... And, that's my, in my opinion, you know, meant to kind of keep up with what was going on with gin, right? Mm. And not kind of get left in this. Like, well, if you want to sell cocktails here and we have rum, we have to kind of, quote unquote, make it more competitive. So that being said, like, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't see a big gulf between classic cocktail bills, such as the ones that we talked about, Cuban rum. Jen, classic—it's all the same to me. I love that because I mean I enjoy all of it. Even though we focus on tiki here on the podcast, I always throw in, um, you know, at least a couple of times a year some prohibition era classic, you know, speakeasy style cocktails. Because, like you said, they—they—they're all. It's all just if it's a good cocktail, it's a good cocktail, and the a lot so many of the ingredients and the styles and the recipes kind of cross pollinate with each other, and they all kind of came. You know, I mean, when when I talk about prohibition butting up to tiki, like I mean that, uh, um, like as an analogy, but also quite literally, I believe Don the Beachcombers opened up the day after prohibition was repealed in 1933, I think it was, or something like that. So it's uh literally you cannot have one without the other. So I don't feel bad on a tiki podcast going back and talking about classic cocktails because you got to you got to you got to have those before you um you got to have the building blocks and. And they're so, you can use, um, one of my favorite things to do, like we were talking about earlier, swapping rums out. Well, t swapping rum out in some of those classic cocktails is actually one of my favorite things to do. I love an old uh, rum Manhattan or rum old fashioned or something like that. And, uh, but now, Shannon, I have definitely taken up too much of your time. So I apologize. We've gone way over the hour that I usually take with people. So I don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, thanks again for talking to me, Shannon. That's, um, Everybody who wants to catch up with you, that's shannonmustafer.com. Um, 
Instagram is where I follow you. You can find all your exploits on there. Um, anybody who's into tiki and into cocktails that hasn't got a hold of the book yet, Tiki Modern Tropical Cocktails. I get a lot of my inspiration for the podcast from there. And I feel like I can talk to you forever, Shannon. We can go back on rum and tiki all night. So, um, but thank you, thank you, thank you so much for coming and talking to me on the podcast. I hope we get to chat again soon and maybe get to hang out sometime. Right on, Tony. Again, a pleasure being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Always fun to chat about rum. And I'm looking forward to the time where I get an opportunity to serve you a drink or a neat pour of rum. I have um, made it one of my one of my uh, uh, goals to try to get a cocktail <laughs> served by some of my by, by some of the people that I look up to in the business. So I will take you up on that. You know, sometimes you feel bad though. It's like it's like a when you're dealing with the, a genre that you're really into, and you you meet um, someone like yourself, or uh, you know, I've had I've had the the pleasure of meeting um, Jeff and 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 Ed Hamilton a bunch of times and at different events and whatnot. But you almost feel like you guys are celebrities in our world. Now, it, it's really cool that in the rum world or in the tiki world, it's almost it's it's very inclusive. You can you can walk up and talk to people. And, and but someone who does what you do for a living, it's almost intimidating to walk up and, and be like, "Hey, can you mix me a drink?" It's well, look. I just want to say you're right. It, I I think that the the tiki community, the travel cocktail community is very welcoming. And uh, I mean, that's aloha and mahalo. Like, <laughs> the whole idea is, is like hospitality and, and making an over-the-top welcoming experience for people. So I'll extend that to you as it's been extended to me. It's always a pleasure. And uh, yeah, so once and again, if you ever come through Nashville, um, I'll show you some of my favorite rum bars around town. Maybe you can, maybe you can, uh, I don't know. This is a pretty good cocktail community. Maybe, maybe it might give you some ideas to open up a place here or something. <laughs> well, Shannon, thank you again for your time. And, um, we'll talk again soon. Sounds like a plan. All right. Thank you, Tony. Thank you.